Right, morning, friends. Uh, glad we could be here this morning on this uh, beautiful spring day. Uh, looks like I'm not the only one in pastels uh, this morning, so uh, I'm glad we as a church can coordinate um, our colors together, so it's important to us. Uh, not, not really that important. Um, so let me, uh, let me just uh, kind of drive our, our minds back a bit to last week. If you were here, uh, awesome, it'll serve as a reminder. If, if you weren't, which is okay, and we're grateful you're here this morning, it just serves as a kind of a recap a bit because it, it really does set the stage. And, and here's why this is critical. Not that I'm going to preach last week's sermon this week and another sermon, although we're going through two chapters uh, this morning, verses, uh, chapter 10 through 12 in Nehemiah. So if you want to open it, feel free uh, to kind of get ready. Um, but the reason why it's so critical is if you just decided to extricate chapter 10 through 12 of Nehemiah and begin to start to apply what would be perceived truth outside of what happened in Nehemiah chapter 1 through 9, uh, we run a risk. And, and the danger, really, is that we could leave this place if we just looked at those two chapters of Scripture with a sense in which uh, we have duties and obligations that exist within the context of faithful obedience to Christ that would then serve as feeling like it's somewhat transactional. Like you have to do something to earn something from God. And really what Nehemiah 9 served for us as a body of believers last week and really what the, what the essence of, of chapter 9 is, is this relentless pursuing activity of God on behalf of his people. So really what we wanted to get a picture of last week, and I think uh, the, uh, the central theme of, of chapter 9 is, is the activity of God on behalf of sinners and individuals that are wanting to be faithful but realizing that it's all God's work. There's just a, a foundational component to our faith that's essential. And that foundational component is, is that as we are in relationship with God through faith in Christ and, and his forgiveness of our sins and, and our intimacy with him, that we've, we've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. So we're in this familial relationship with the God of the universe. And there are two things that we have to fundamentally realize all the time. One is God's character and two is our need. And so God's character, as Nehemiah 9 expressed it, is he's always active, always searching, always working, always doing in everything, every time, everywhere. There's not a moment where God isn't actively working on your behalf for his glory. And so that allows us some level of fundamental rest that we don't have to fix our lives or figure out what we've got to do. It's pressing in to a relationship with God through faith in Christ that serves as the essential reality of what God is doing in us. When I was before B.E., before Aaron, we were dating uh, in, um, we, I was on a missions trip in Ocean City, New Jersey, and we've been dating for a while, and she had just finished doing missions work um, in uh, France as part of the, when the, when the World Cup was in France, she was with Campus Crusade for Christ and they were sharing the gospel at different stadiums and things like that during the World Cup in France. And, uh, we had, you know, we'd fallen in love, 100% convinced that, that, you know, for me, marriage was, was on the, the docket for me. Like I was, I was convinced. And so, uh, they had pay phones back then. Yeah, FYI, that's dating myself a bit. Uh, no, no cell phones at the time, but I, I got on the payphone and I, I called her dad. Um, just FYI, girls, yeah, this is important, even for my kids. 
the, the boy better ask me permission. You know, I mean, like, yeah, I did it, so you have to do it too. But so I, I called him on the phone, and we were talking, and I just said, you know, I was, I was nervous as I'll get out. I was probably more nervous talking to him than I was asking her to get married. But nonetheless, we just chatted, and, and he gave me permission to ask her to marry me. And so what had happened is there was a, a bench that was on this boardwalk where years before, a couple years before, we were on that mission trip together, and it was the first time ever that I had told her that I loved her. And so it was on that bench that I told her and asked her, got down on my knee and asked her to marry me on the bench where I first told her that I loved her. Oh, I know that's what I was hoping, (laughs) that we'd get something, right? Just like, that's so romantic, that's so awesome. Here's what you don't know is that uh, I didn't have tons of money at the time, and there was a Ferris wheel that we were going to go on, and I made her pay because I didn't have any cash. <clears throat> it is what it is. I, I told her this because I spent all the cash on the ring. So fair enough, right? She was gracious. Uh, but it, it's interesting as I was thinking about that and even reflecting on this sermon that there was a, an initiative act that I took to communicate to her her, her value in my life, and that, that there was a, a, an attitude and an aspect of proactive love where I wanted to initiate a relationship with her, and my hope was that she would respond in kind. There's a theologian or a pastor that said it this way, never has anyone who has faith in Christ ever truly told God that, he, that, that they love him. It's always been and I love you too. Which means that it's always God's activity initiating and drawing us into deep relationship with us. And our response of I love you too is a response of love and affection that, that affects every aspect of our life. So there are parts of our life that represent our love and our gratitude and our response to God's overarching, relentless, pursuing love of us. And that's chapter 10 through 12. So these are detailed, critical, clear places where the people of God are responding to the active love of God in ways that affect the very details of what they do. And it's not just the details of what they do, but it really fundamentally is about how they think. There's a a responding to the active love and passionate pursuit of God for his people that allows for this sense of safety and security within the confines of that relationship where what we're doing is responding to an intentional love of God who has adopted us into his family through faith in Christ that allows for an intentionality and a thoughtfulness of what God is doing. So there's never a moment that God isn't actively working. And so all honestly, often in our lives, we would feel like that might not be true. (laughs) There's times where we felt distant from God, where we've wondered if God is active and attentive. We've, We've convinced or the voices of the world around us or the circumstances that surround our experience are telling us things. And they're telling us lies about God that we're believing. (laughs) And those lies are that God 
doesn't care, doesn't know, or he's punishing you for some reason because you've done something stupid. And, and in all of those pieces, Nehemiah 9 served as the basis to realize that he, he went through the whole uh, history of the nation of Israel, and he was like, look how much they've sinned and how frequently they've done dumb things, and their stiff-necked was a, a determination of their attitude and posture towards God, that, that there, there's a pride and a self-righteousness that existed within how they operated, and then they'd get themselves in a whole bunch of trouble. I mean, this is Old Testament kind of one-on-one. They got themselves in a whole bunch of trouble, and what happened? They'd realize, well, I can't do it on my own. I can't figure it out. They turn back to God, and what has happened? God is ready to forgive, Nehemiah 9 says. That there's a, a constant turning, and even in the midst of their poor decisions and all the things that have taken place, God is still carrying out his plan for their lives, and the same is true for us. And so Nehemiah 10 through 12, fundamentally about the impact of God's love for his people. Like what, what difference does it really make for you and I as followers of Christ to say, God loves me, 100% theological truth? What difference does it make categorically in your understanding of the character of God and your own sin and your own need for him? So we're going to just pick, I'm not going to read all two chapters, um, and don't think it's because there's a thousand different names in there, although there is a thousand different names, and that's part of the reason. Um, it's a little bit insane. Uh, but again, what I, what I love about that is, is all of those names, incredibly difficult to pronounce. But these are, these are people. And, and what they're doing is they're in the process of, of signing and committing to a promise that they're making to God because of the impact of God's love for them. It's just begin to generate a desire and a longing to just be faithful to God. Not because they want to prove or earn God's favor, but because they realize how relentlessly God has loved them. And they just want to respond with their life. And so they're, they're signing and promising this covenant. So Nehemiah chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 28. Here's what it says. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singer, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the people of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who had knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. And to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land to take them. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and uh, the exaction of every debt. So here, as we look at those things, an initial response to a text like this is just to say, or we could say, look, just be obedient. Just do what God says, and, and, and in the process of doing God, what God says and, and, and pursuing all those things, you're going to be all set. But, but again, we need to move back to the basis for which we do what we do. And that basis is God is actively working in a thousand different ways, drawing us to himself. And so 
God's commitment to his plan and his people, what it ends up doing is it ends up infusing hope. So now there's this sense in the context of this overarching reality of God's pursuing love for them, what what happens? Well, they begin to respond with the reality that the things that God is doing in them are bigger than them. There's something about what they're about as they're uniting with the work of God. They don't want to diminish the fact that it's about God's glory and his work that ultimately at the end of the day when the walls are being built and and in the next chapter we're going to see the walls are being dedicated, there's just this sense that they are so grateful that God has done what they could never do, that what they want to do is just respond in a way of understanding and assuring and praising and communicating that God has done amazing and miraculous things. It's similar, I think, if we take a look back on our own lives, right? The Bible always calls us back to remember and to thinking about the, the places where God has provided so significantly for every single one of us. And we would look back and, and our stories, if we were asked to tell our testimony here in church, would be marked by places of those two very things. I was this. This is how I made a mess of my life. But let me tell you about God. How, how God has worked in such a way to, to intrude in my life. I'm, I'm only alive because of the work that he's done. And there's no reason why I should be alive except for the saving, rescuing, pursuing power and love of God. Like he's done things in my life that, that I would have never even expected. And so in response to seeing how big God is and understanding how deep my need is every day, I realize that there begins to grow in a, in a passion and a desire to, to be about the things of God. Because I know what he's done in my life. That there's a, a relationship and a worthiness to be trusted in all of these things. And so that's what ends up happening through the rest of chapter 10 as they continue to, to walk through. They, they take this obligation. They're looking at God's word and they're seeing what it says and they're taking it for what it says and they're being faithful to it. And so at, at the end of this, the text that I read, they're, they're realizing that, that there's a, a year of jubilee that God had set up so that every seventh year, everything that, every debt that had incurred, everything that had happened, it'd be totally forgiven and you get a chance to start from scratch. It's interesting because I was thinking about that. I've just finished today, actually, I think pretty close, just finished my seventh year of ministry here at Park Springs Bible Church. So that means everything I've screwed up gets forgiven, right? So... <laughs> Every time I've messed up, you can't ever bring it back to me. We're starting fresh today. I don't think that's the application of the text, but uh, it is for you, just so you know. I'm, I'm in 100%. So let's jump to verse 38 in, in chapter, uh, chapter 10. And here, here's what it, it says. 38, it's actually 39. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring contributions of grain and wine and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and singers. And then here's what they say. We will not neglect the house of God. Here's what happens. I think as this story unfolds in the book of Nehemiah and the reality of what God is building, which we've said numerous times, what's built to last is the hearts and minds of men and women who are followers of God. And so as God is building those things, here's what they begin to realize When we commit ourselves and we join with the work that God is doing, we begin to see everything we have as his. Everything in our lives, 
relationships, family, children, finances, time, attention, effort, appetites, longings, hopes, dreams, everything that would capture for us what we would say life is. When that is put on the backdrop of the canvas of God's pursuing love, you know what we see? We see the fact that it's all God's. That there is nothing that we need to control and manage in our lives when it's put in the backdrop and in relationship to the infinite work that God is doing. Everything is God's. I'm not trying to pre-plan my life. I'm not trying to figure out all of the details or, or even leveraging and saying, God, you can have this part of my heart, but uh, I'm on my own on this one. When we come in relationship to the reality of God's unending work in our lives and his passionate pursuit of his people and this love that he's communicated and exhibited so frequently in every aspect of our lives, it's as though there's this place where the people of God with utter safety and utter security can say, awesome, you're in charge. God, whatever you want, whenever you want it, whatever you desire, whenever you desire, it. whatever you call, whenever you call me to do it, whatever you think is where I'm going to place and, and leverage and anchor my entire life. Because you're the one that has relentlessly pursued me in so many extravagant and lavish ways that all I enjoy most is that relationship with you. And so my response to the lavish love of God is to say the very thing that we talked about at the beginning. I love you too. And, and that, that love, that expression of the work of God in all of our lives is just one of those places where we begin to realize that God is generating two things, a deeper love for him and an awareness that so often our appetites and our affections desire other things. That's the place of growth, the place where you want something, I want something, we desire or long for specific things, and yet realize that all we have and all we need is found in Christ. He is sufficient for every situation that you and I encounter. The terrible moments of grief don't minimize the reality of what we face and the challenges that we experience. But there's a sense in which Jesus has entered into that space and given us himself, the wonderful counselor, mighty God. Right? These descriptions of who Christ is, is the centerpiece of realizing that what we have is found in Christ. And the word of God has given us everything we need, as it tells it of itself, for faith and godliness. Like we're equipped for the reality of the things we know we're dealing with and the things that we don't know yet that we will be dealing with because Christ is sufficient. And is in his sufficiency, he is moving and working in ways to exhibit his love for us beyond what we could experience. It's been said before that love is blind. <laughs> and apparently, I haven't watched it, I promise, there's a show on Netflix called Love is Blind. Here's what they do, apparently. I promise, I didn't watch it, but... There's so there's this they're they're wondering and everybody's trying to figure out marriage right they have another show called uh, love at first sight where these people sort of just have 
been brought together by all of this science and personality tests and so on and so forth. And the first day they meet one another is on their wedding day. And they get married. And then they follow them for months or years trying to see if the marriage lasts. I think the best count that I've had that I understand in them so far in that show is that most of them, if not all of them, have gotten divorced. But this Love is Blind series is, is another way to have that entry point. And so they don't get a chance to see each other, but there's some level of emotional contact and connection that they get to have with one another prior to actually being able to see one another. And then uh, on their uh, engagement day, they get engaged and then they see each other and they get six months to decide whether or not they're going to stick it out based on whether or not the person looks good enough for them, I guess. I, I don't know. It's crazy. But we would like to say that, like we've heard that mantra before in the context of our own life, right? Love is blind, which means that it, it doesn't, it, it overshadows all of the, the challenges or the discrepancies or the dysfunction or the brokenness that exists in every person's life. G.K. Chesterton says it this way, which I think is really uh, intriguing and helpful. Love is not blind. That is the last thing that it is. Love is not blind love is bound. And that more it is bound, the less it is blind. Chesterton argued that the real love depends on commitment. The way to love someone as they truly are is to vow to them uh, love that no matter what comes, and the more one is committed the vows of marriage, the less blind they are to the real person who desires to be loved. Here's my suggestion. To be truly loved one must be truly known. That it's not about hiding the inadequacies of our own hearts, our own brokenness. It's about being aware of all of those things and choosing commitment, trust, and faith towards one another. Now, that's on an earthly level. But I think if we extrapolate this to the reality of what Nehemiah 10 through 12 is saying, is that that's what you have in Christ. He knows <laughs> Those moments where you think things you know you shouldn't be thinking. Those things that you're doing things that no one else knows about, that you feel the reality of those, those things that are existing in your heart are aware. God is aware of every single thought, every single thing that we've had, every single time, and realizes that there's a commitment that he has to each and every one of us who've placed our faith in Christ. Never leave us, never forsake us. Right? There is such an infinite value in realizing that God is consistently pursuing us in so many different ways that it changes how we do what we do and how we think about the things that are around us. The commitment that God has that drove Christ to the cross to forgive us of our sins and provide for us intimacy and life with him is the place where we understand that love is not blind. It's bound. God didn't sweep your sin under the rug, nor mine. He paid for it. That matters as we understand the significance of God's love towards us and our response of, I love you too. So here's where things begin to progress. We kind of jump through chapter 11 and everyone's committing their villages outside the church, in, outside of Jerusalem. Some are staying in, some are staying out. They're just kind of laying through some of the, the practical details for some of those things. Um, but here's what I want. I want to move to kind of the dedication of the wall. So Nehemiah chapter 12, if you flip your pages over, we're going we're to focus in on verse 43. 
And so they, they dedicate the wall, which means that basically what they're doing is they're getting all together and all of these people are assembling and they're looking at this building of the wall that had taken place and they're saying, the Lord's done this. We dedicate all the work to him. And so how do they do that? Well, they, they get all these people together. They have choirs. They march around the wall. They pray. They sing. There's just this huge element that takes place where all of God's people at that time are communicating about the value of God's love in their life and and their response is critical for us. Their response is one of praise. Look in verse 43. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. Why did they rejoice? For God had made them rejoice with great joy. It's like you can't find another word. <laughs> There's so much joy to be had when we are a part of seeing God's work be done in the midst of God's people. The women, children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. When God works in the midst of his people, it cannot be contained within the place that it happens. It, it gets seen all over the known environment. Like it was heard from far away as they were singing and erupting in all of this praise for the goodness and grace of God in their lives. That that there is so much significance that what, what I'd like to suggest to you this morning is that God's work ignites and invites praise. When, when we see God doing things in the lives of others and in our lives as well, we begin to see an incredible work and love of God's pursuing love for his people in such a way that it it generates in us a desire to express what we're watching God do. And sometimes it comes on the heels of hardship. Sometimes it comes on the heels of lives being changed and marriages being saved. Sometimes it comes on the heels of, of watching people mourn the loss of loved ones and, and uniting together through seasons of grief. I mean, every moment, everywhere, at every time, God is always working. And he's always working in ways that are exhibiting his love on behalf of his people. So we're understanding more about his character in the good times and the bad. And so when we see God's work, which is all over the place, our hearts are ignited and invited to praise. Let me tell you a story, and I have plenty of my own where I've just seen God do amazing things that really do um, elicit for me just a sense of, God, you are so good, and I'm so unworthy of the, the work that you've done that I, I just, I'm so grateful to share and to communicate and to praise your name because of how good you are. There's a story during the 30 Years' War in the 1600s that, that really struck me uh, of a pastor. His name was Pastor Martin, and he was in uh, Islandburg during one of the most horrific wars um, uh, that we, we knew of. In, in 30 years, there's an estimation between 4.5 million and 8 million people died. And so he was in, in Islandburg, and it was intended to be a refuge um, uh, for fugitives who had suffered and had been uh, kind of jumped over uh, there to, to be safe. Um, and at the beginning in 1637, uh, there was, a, now you had famine that hit also during the war. And there were four ministers in Islandburg. One abandoned his post and decided that he wanted to go to a place that was more safe and more comfortable. Um, uh, Pastor Martin uh, officiated the funeral of the other two. 
He's the only pastor left. He offered uh, services and conducted services for as many as four to 50 people a day, some 4,480 in all. In May of that year, his own wife died. By the end of the year, the refugees had to be buried in trenches without services. So you think about just being surrounded for almost your entire ministry with just this aroma of death. But Pastor Martin wrote the following prayer to his children, and it would be familiar to you. Now thank we all our God, God, with hearts and hands and voices, whose wondrous things hath done, in whom the world rejoices, whom from his mother's arms has led us on our way with countless gifts of love, and still ours today. Let me just ask, how is that possible? Like, literally, you were watching hundreds and thousands of people consumed by death, war, and pestilence. You're burying your colleagues. You buried your wife in the context of just a, a whole host of trauma that exists. How can words exist that would be able to say in those moments with countless gifts of love that are still ours today? I, I think... What Pastor Martin would say, what Nehemiah 10 through 12 tells us, is that our hope and the reality of who we are is found in relationship with God. And so we're able to see his character in ways that are overwhelming and incite and ignite praise because we see the value of realizing that our relationship with God does not just exist on an earthly level. It's not dependent on whether or not things go great in life. And often I think when we think about our own relationship with God, it ebbs and flows, and often the tipping point of whether it's going well or going poorly is how hard things are that lay before us. And yet God would overshadow all of those things with his pursuing love and be drawing us to himself and saying that very thing. No matter how hard it gets, no matter what it looks like, no matter how difficult the things are before us, the wondrous love of God is worthy of proclaiming. For numerous reasons, not the least of which is this place is not my home. I am not setting up a place here because I, I expect that somehow in some way things are going to work out in this life. My, my heart is, is longing for, for the object of my affections, which is Christ, and I can't wait for the day to meet him. Paul says it this way, for me, to live, it's Christ. To die, it's gain. So realize that the overwhelming, overshadowing love of God in my life is doing things beyond what I can see. And so my response is praise, a gratitude and a realization of the incredible, amazing work that God has done. What? More of God less of this world. He must increase. I must decrease. The rhythm of the word of God is to draw us to God himself. We serve a God who is relational and his love for you is unbelievable. So what do we do? Trust it. <laughs> Press into that relationship in innumerable ways. Recognize that his love for you, even in the midst of failure and brokenness, 
is drawing you in to deeper faith and trust in him. And then realize that everything we have in life is his anyway. And so serve and utilize those things out of an aspect of gratitude as a way to say, I love you too. Would you pray with me?